Welcome, everybody, to my first episode of Everything Imaginable. Uh, we have our first, our guest for today is Johnson Miller. He's been studying his dreams for more than 30 years. He's the author of Dream Patterns, Revealing the Hidden Patterns of Our Waking Lives, published by Finehorn Press, which recently became an imprint of Inner Traditions, and it was translated into Czech last year. He is, by profession, a historian and teaches at a prestigious university in Philadelphia. How are you today, Johnson? Um, excellent. How are you? I'm pretty good myself. Thanks for asking. And thank you for being on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm super excited about this. Oh, and my listeners, my name is Gary Cacciolillo, the guy with a really long last name. <laughs> so, I want to brought you on today to talk about your book. First of all, I want to say the opening line of this book I love it. Dreams are bizarre. You couldn't get further from the truth with that opening line. I love it. How'd you come up with that line? Uh, well, I thought it kind of obvious, right? I mean, we, everybody loves talking about their dreams. Um, and, you know, and why? I mean, probably because they're just so, uh, they're so bizarre. Um, that's, uh, that's what we love about them. Um, they, uh, you know, you wake up in the morning, just a bizarre dream, and that thing can just live with you for the, uh, for the rest of your day. Um, Definitely. And what made you um, get interested in dreams? Because they're bizarre. <laughs> exactly <laughs> that, right? Yeah, that's why it's the first line uh, in, in the book. Yeah, I've been interested in for you know, most of my life now, and... Um, I'm sure it was the, the bizarreness of them that got me to start uh, paying attention to them and starting to find books about them to, uh, to learn more and figure out what to do with my dreams. And um, how did you start looking at the patterns of your dreams rather than looking at the symbolism in dreams like everybody else does? Yeah, well, so when I got interested, I started getting books. And the first thing you come across are these uh, you know, dream dictionaries and um, and sometimes there's other books that look more complicated, but that ultimately just end up being complicated versions of, of uh, dream dictionaries. And so I would use those and it would just make complete nonsense of my dreams. I wasn't getting anything out of them. Um, and I did, you know, then I read also like Freud and, and Jung and I could get a lot out of some of my dreams uh, with that. You know, they apply to, you know, each of the, their approaches apply to a certain subset, but it seemed to me there's still a ton of dreams that I just wasn't able to make sense of with those approaches. And I just happened to, to notice, um, I mean, this was back in, you know, in high school, even happened to notice a certain pattern of dreams that the, it, and the same sort of theme kept popping up and using dream dictionaries or archetypes from Jung didn't really apply to make sense of this end of the, the, the items appearing repeatedly in those individual dreams. But I realized as a whole, they were able to point me to something in my life that I hadn't been paying attention to, hadn't actually realized was there. And then suddenly my dreams uh, uh, just started making total sense to me that, that it was the, the patterns then that were going to help me figure out what to do with these things. Okay. And um, so in order, order to find out what the pattern of your dreams are um, in your book, you talk about keeping a dream journal. Can you talk about um, how you came up with the dream journal and some of the formats that you would suggest? Everybody who, um, who deals with uh, dreaming um, will tell you you got to keep it a journal. And for one thing, keeping a journal is going to just sort of establish a discipline in your life that makes you think about your dreams more, leading to recalling more dreams. And that's the key thing. you got to recall them. 
Um, but if you're going to be paying attention to patterns, you got to journal with it a different way than simply just writing down all the dreams that you remember from the previous night, because you have to be able to go back and track the patterns. And so the thing that I found that I had to add into this, along with the regular journal, was also starting to create a, um, a dream report where, for me, it seems to work about every two weeks. Uh, it is where you take a look at the, um, the various settings, characters, uh, various items, uh, uh, various elements that appear in the dream, and um, to sort of make a list list of them. So in terms of characters, um, so I have a page for characters, and I write down you know, the different types of characters that appear, and maybe find that coworkers come up a whole bunch. Right, that's the thing that's really pressing those those two weeks, and then maybe find a particular kind of setting appears all the time. And then if you've got these easy to look at reports where you can just look and see the various types of elements, how many times they're appearing, you can look from that report, look back to the next, to the previous one, to the one before that, and maybe patterns that you missed in a two week period, you start to realize, they start to pop out at you looking at a longer time scale. And if you only have the individual dreams recorded, uh, you can't, you can't see that. So it's a, a logical approach to approaching dreams. I find it fascinating. Yeah, well, I'm a, I don't know, kind of hyper-rational uh, sort of guy. So making systems and, and keeping track of things uh, um, and numbers was a, a sort of natural way for me to go about it. Do you have any suggestions on how a person can uh, better recall their dreams? It, well, the first thing is just keeping the, uh, the, the journal itself, um, having it next to your, to your bed. I, I prefer handwriting them. Um, and... Besides that, when you're laying down to sleep, if you just keep saying to yourself, I will recall my dreams, I will recall my dreams, I will recall my dreams, and then you fall asleep doing that, uh, you'll, you'll increase your, your dream recall. I mean, honestly, just grab a dream journal, write down, even if you wake up one day and you don't remember anything, just write down, did not recall any dreams. If you keep doing that, uh, I guarantee you in a, uh, in a week, you'll start recalling more, more dreams. And this, this can get crazy. I mean, there's, I've had times where I'm recalling um, you know, 15 dreams in a single night. I didn't even know it had that many dreams. In one night. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that you talked about in your book is sleep paralysis. Um, and how sometimes that may relate to people having um, associated, being associated with like alien abduction and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, sleep paralysis. So there's a whole lot that's bizarre about dreams or about sleeping, not just the dreams. And sleep paralysis is one of the strangest things and terrifying too. I, I've experienced it a few times all throughout throughout my life, where you're, you know, if you, so our our brains as a dream, they don't really distinguish much between dreaming and being awake. And so if you're you're doing a particular action dream, your brain tries to send signals to your arms or your legs or whatever to go do that thing. Um, but if you could actually do that you know, you'd be walking around your sleep all the time. We'd be getting injured. We never would have survived as a species. And so we evolved uh, sleep paralysis where it shuts down certain functions of the body so that you're not responding to them. That's why you, you rapid eye movement. Your eyes move back and forth real quick during the dream stages. I'm sure everybody's seen that. You know, we've seen mm -hmm. somebody sleeping. And that's because their eyes are looking at stuff in dreams. That part isn't paralyzed because it doesn't need to be. It's not, you're not going to get hurt from you. But, um, but sometimes you start to wake up and the paralysis hasn't yet worn off. And this can be terrifying because you can't move, but you're awake or you're fairly awake. And for some reason, it brings with it certain 
terrifying features. Very commonly, people will see uh, frightening figures. And for me, it's often been with very large eyes, which, you know, think like the mm -hmm. classic alien image. Um, they, these figures are often menacing. Um, sometimes they will be speaking to you or other strange sounds. And then just the terror of, because the fear that comes from not being able to, uh, to move. And, uh, you know, so here's a sleep paralysis example that I have uh, that okay. may be able to, um, to appreciate the idea that this helps explain, you know, some alien abduction stories. Um, I was uh, sleeping, or I, I thought I was sleeping. I, no, I was merging. I didn't know what sleep paralysis was. I guess I was starting to wake up and I was paralyzed. And I heard a click in one corner of the room and then in another. And it started moving back and forth from one side to the other. And at the same time, I was seeing this bizarre and menacing looking owl sitting in my, the window of my bedroom with his big, large eyes. And for some reasons was very menacing. And, um, and I, I knew somehow that once the clicking got inside my head, I would be taken away by these menacing things that the clicking was associated with two beings in the room somehow. Um, and the paralysis wore off just before they got to my, to my head. And I jumped up screaming. And so you think of stories you might have heard about um, alien abduction stories are all like the, the idea of the large eyed animal being um, is, is a common theme in that. Uh, I think Whitley Stryber himself might've had that in, uh, in his book on this, uh, his, that he made into a movie um, where the idea is that an owl or something like that stands in for the alien or you misremember the alien as that. But I, I think in that case, sleep paralysis is the, is perfect explanation for some of these and ghosts as well. Um, I, over the past few years, it doesn't frighten me anymore because I know what it is and I just relax knowing the process will go away. But I see, see ghosts in my room. I just a, few, a month or two ago saw this ghostly child right next to my bed look staring me in the face, initially scared the crap out of me. And then I realized, oh, I can't move. I'm, this is sleep paralysis. And I just relaxed and, just, and the fear went away. And I watched this ghost figure just sort of fade away as my, my body um, uh, fully woke up. And so I think it can explain some ghost sightings as well. Definitely explains um, some paranormal encounters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, not all, but. Definitely some. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, as far as explanations for paranormal and aliens, it's a very good one. I have to say it's pretty solid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, so how about the boundaries between being awake and being conscious and being asleep. You know, it's like sometimes it seems like a little bit hazy to me. Like sometimes like when I'm dreaming, I'll think I'm awake. Yeah. Well, I don't think there is a clear boundary. I think what we deal with consciousness is a spectrum. And so at the one end, you have a fully waking consciousness where you have full awareness of your surroundings. You, you respond to stimuli with, you know, at least the illusion of free will. And then the other end, you have fully unconscious dreams where it's a deep sleep, solid dream, and you simply passively receive the dream, no awareness of being awake. Uh, there's no, the conscious mind isn't active at all in trying to interpret the events. It's simply uh, passively going through the, through the story. And then in between, you've got um, lucid dreaming, which is when um, you are fully asleep and you are dreaming, but then you recognize that you are dreaming. And 
when that recognition comes, very often people are able to take conscious control of their dreams just as they would if they were walking around you know, in, in regular waking life. And so there's clearly this, there's a spectrum. And I think one of this fact, I think explains a lot of the phenomenon in our dreams where I often have these dreams of, of uh, maybe trying to go somewhere. I'm in a, the train station. I ride trains all the time for work uh, or in an airport and I'm trouble. I can't find my, my platform or I can't find my ticket. It's all very confusing or I'm trying to work with a machine and the machine doesn't work right. And I think what this explains is this happens when some element of waking consciousness is present in the dream, trying to process things, but you're not aware that you're dreaming. And because the dream world does not respond the way we expect the waking world to, it, it creates, uh, well, it's confusing. It, the dream world is not, doesn't follow Newtonian or even quantum physics, right? It's, it's its own thing. And so when things don't respond the way that we expect, it, we're confused. So whenever that element of confusion pops up in the dream, I don't think that's something that you should interpret and say, oh, here's some meaning. I think all it means is your conscious mind was active in there and the world just didn't make sense. And that, again, illustrates that the, um, the spectrum of consciousness that we go through all throughout the day, whether we're waking or sleeping. And of course, when we're perfectly awake, you know, with daydreaming, we, you know, we slip further on that spectrum away from, you know, full lucid conscious awareness during the day. So it's not just when we're asleep that that spectrum is at play. Even when we're awake, that spectrum, we, we are at different places in that spectrum. It's pretty wild. Like sometimes I guess when we're awake, we don't even know how awake we are or how asleep we are. It yeah. can really affect our interpretation of reality. Yeah, uh, I'm sure. I mean, a simplest version of this would be, you know, you end up, you drive somewhere and you're like, wait a minute, how did I get here? I mean, you know, where you, you're just sort of on autopilot. Yeah, that happened to me once after a class at Mercer County College. I was driving home. And all of a sudden, I realized I was in Philadelphia. I mean, I was, like, I was in a completely another state. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, how did that happen? Yeah. Your body just took over and, you know, you're, yeah, you slid down that spectrum of consciousness. Way down. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not a good thing when driving. No, but I, I didn't get any accidents, so that was good. All right. Um, so one of the things that I used to imagine when I was a kid before going to sleep was um, that when I fell asleep that I could go into somebody else's dream or somebody could come into my dream, like a shared type of dream consciousness. Just like when we're awake, you know, we sort of share a certain reality. Do you think it's possible for that to happen when we're asleep? Uh, so I've, I've never experienced that, but the way, you know, so this is a big deal. If that could happen, that would say something really serious and fascinating about, you know, I don't know, consciousness or even basic physics or something, right? And so the way to figure this out is you, you got to keep a dream journal. If you can document, you need to be able to document something like that, right? Um, and so just another reason to, to keep the, the dream journal. Mm -hmm. So I haven't, haven't experienced anything, um, anything like that myself. I've seen stories about it, but, you know, again, without having the journals to check, um, it's it's hard to it's hard to tell. Absolutely. All right. So, what is the most powerful dream that you've ever had? Um, it. So Carl Jung, who doesn't deal with patterns, right? I mean, he's he's for those listeners who aren't familiar with them. He um, 
um, he interpreted a certain class of dreams. He called them big dreams as, a, as opposed to small everyday dreams. These are powerful, symbolically rich dreams um, that were basically myths being played out in our dreams. And he argued that these, we tended to have these sorts of big dreams at times of major transition in our lives. So like adolescence um, and when I, so when I was going through adolescence, I had this really big dream. And when you have these big dreams, you know it because it just feels different. It feels powerful. If you're wondering like, oh, is that a big dream or not? No, it wasn't. You would know it. And so in this dream, I was in a, uh, in a room brightly lit by the sun because there's all these windows and there was a cabinet full of all these like, crystal goblets. And there was uh, three women. Well, one was like a teenage girl and then, um, a more uh, middle-aged sort of woman and then uh, an older woman maybe in her, her 70s or so and the youngest of them went to the cabinet pulled out a glass goblet and handed it to me and so you might immediately start thinking of things like the holy grail the maiden mother crone uh, myth and then as soon as she handed me the goblet i appeared outside uh, beneath a giant tree and hanging from this tree by a rope as if you know hung by his neck was a skeleton with this old rusty rotting armor and the helmet had these rays like the like the statue of liberty has the rays coming out from her crown um like uh like a halo or you know or sun sunbeams coming out mm -hmm. and there he was rotted and dead but next to him was this undulating black space and inside was a nude very healthy man rotating on his axis which i immediately associated with the like with the the it was the between the rays and this rotating that it was the sun and this undulating black bag um so you can think of it as the the um the man uh, gestating and so it struck me as a sort of the classic image of the the sun god dying and being reborn just as the sun decreases into the depths of the winter and then increases again and we could get into, you know, okay, well, what does this mean? Mm -hmm. But the things with these big dreams is articulating a specific meaning is not always the most helpful thing. It was a matter of feeling it. And so there in adolescence, I was going from one phase of life to another. And how do you deal with that? How do you become a new person? How do you live in the world through that change? Whether it's, you know, that or, or it could be, you know, menopause or um, becoming a parent, you know, some of these major life changes that, uh, that you have to learn to be in the world in a new way. And Jung argued that archetypes, these archetypal dreams, these big dreams are a way of sort of providing you new mythological language for guiding you through that. And so here I was being reborn into a new form and, you know, moving towards uh, closer to adulthood and coming out of, out of adolescence. It didn't matter if I can say what the dream means or not. It was, I simply felt it in my bones, the, the, um, the, the change. It was, it was as if I was being offered this, um, esoteric insight into things that, you know, like any good true symbol, simply cannot be articulated in words. I remember the dream vividly for my entire life. I've never forgotten it. That is, that is crazy, that dream. I can't imagine having something. Well, I guess I can. Um, I probably have some powerful dreams that I don't remember. I remember exactly. some of them that I've had as a child. Um, but uh, yeah, so you talk. You mentioned Carl Jung, and I tried to read. I think it was like um, dreams, memories, and something book yeah. written by him. 
and I have to say, it was probably the most difficult read that I've ever. I, I, I couldn't really get through the whole book, um, and I found some of it to be. I don't know, almost um, occultish. Yes, he was very um, influenced by the occult. Um, did you, do you think he was, um, was he just crazy? Um, or was he a genius? Or is there maybe there is, there is something to the occult imagery? Yeah, so, uh, well, I think he's great. Um, he's, I think, it's particularly his work with dreams helps us understand a certain class of dreams. And he recognized it himself that he couldn't explain all dreams. He wasn't trying to. It was just those, those big dreams. But I do think he's um, a genius. Now, I don't have to agree with his idea of, say, a collective unconscious, that there is this somehow this existing body of images out there that we can all draw on and all influence at the same time. That, like you talked about, being able to go into one another's dreams. So this idea of a collective unconscious where, that we were all contributing to. Now, you don't have to believe that that actually happened. So I'm not sure I believe his explanations, but I think he's great at describing particular phenomena and finding great meaning, meaning in them. And he was something of an occultist or at least a, a, a Gnostic. And he wrote a book on Gnosticism, which was a form of sort of Christianity or semi-Christianity um, early in the first century that was a much more sort of mystical, but it's about shedding the material world and going deep, finding this um, truth revealed behind the world um, and having direct experience of that, uh, of that reality. And he's had some visions of his own and he wrote them out. Um, uh, the sermons, uh, what seven sermons for the dead, I believe it's called. And it looks to me like really authentic Gnostic writing, you know, of the sort that you see in those early first or second century uh, Greek texts. Um, and so I think he was the, he was the real deal when it comes to that sort of mysticism um, and I think he has a lot to tell us about how, how we can think about the role of mythology in our lives and, and um, finding meaning in, in dreams and myths, especially as we move from one phase of our lives to another. Yeah, definitely. He's definitely an interesting character. One of the other places that I, I encountered him quite often is uh, for a while I was really interested in tarot cards. Mm -hmm. And uh, almost every book on tarot cards refers to some of Jung's explanations of symbolism. And the, it seems like that symbolism goes back, you know, to almost like the beginning of human civilization. Yeah. I, so yeah, I'm familiar with the, with the, the tarot cards as well, and especially the, the major arcana, like we're, all, you know, most people I'm sure are familiar with the fool card or, um, or the death card. And my favorite is the tower where the lightning bolt is destroying the, the tower, blowing it right. apart. And I think about this great sort of spiritual illumination that busts down our egos that we can then rebuild on our own terms. Um, and so I, I find that imagery really uh, powerful as well. I haven't personally had tarot-like imagery in my, my dreams very much. I know people have it a lot, but there are also people who work with tarot a lot. And so what you know, our, to, our dreams, they grab the things from our environment, from our everyday experience to, to use as imagery. And so, of course, as people are drawing on tarot quite a bit. Uh, but yeah, I've seen the same sort of references to Jung when it comes to tarot, you know, the idea of, of archetypes, that these are uh, universal symbols um, 
and so one of the greatest interpreters of Jung when it comes to um, uh, to myth is uh, Joseph Campbell. He's a, um, a famous mythologist who um, draws on on um, Jung. But what he argues is, is he has a different explanation. Rather than a collective unconscious, Campbell argues that there are certain universal things about being human, you know, like the experience of being born, the way that that happens. Everybody, well, unless you get a cesarean section, everybody goes through the same thing. And so this becomes uh, sort of, oh, and, and our very physiology, having two eyes on the front of our head. Things like this create sort of universal experiences as we go through the world that he argues help build a collective um, uh, grouping of symbols, in other words, archetypes, as, as Jung would call them. Um, and uh, I believe uh, Campbell was interested in uh, terror for this reason as well. So rather than going back to the beginning of civilization, um, Campbell would argue it goes back to the beginning of being human and a shared experience of being in the world with two arms, two eyes, and you know, um, all, you know, everything else that is universal about about us physiologically. That's definitely interesting. You know, one of the things that I thought of when you mentioned your dream, actually, is there's a tarot deck by Alistair Crowley. Oh, yeah. And, and the, I believe, I think it's his full card, actually has like an image of a child inside an egg. Oh, uh, is that the, the sun card, I think, maybe? Or maybe, maybe that's what it was. Which ties it even closer to that dream that I yeah <laughs> that I said before, right? Yeah, it's um, kind of interesting. Like, I was never really a, not like a huge fan of Crowley. You know, I think he was sort of egotistical. Uh, but, but when, <laughs> that when I read point. that when I read that dream, that's, that's what it, it made me remember. Like, I think there's a card in the Alistair Crowley deck that's kind of like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's just amazing. Um. So also in your book, you talked about one of your dreams where you're in a room of unruly students. Yes, I'm and, a teacher. And, and, and somehow you connected this to your meditation practice. How did you make that connection? Yeah. All right. So it, because of the journal. Um, all right. So in these dreams, I'm, I'm trying to teach and I just can't get the students to um, – to settle down and pay attention and it's all a total disaster. Now, initially I think, oh, okay, well this is just one of those things where, um, well, first of all, I thought about my work, my work life at the time and it was actually going great. So there wasn't any anxiety there. So I knew it wasn't that. And I thought, oh, it's just my waking consciousness entering in and, and what I described before about the dream world not responding. Um, but then I, I was looking back at my journal. I don't, I don't just keep a dream journal, but I keep other sorts of things. Like I had my meditation practice recorded in there. And so as I was going back through doing my um, biweekly reports, I, I saw this correlation as those dreams with enrolled students in, increased. Um, so was my work in, um, in uh, Raja Yoga. It's a form of meditation that emphasizes uh, concentration on a single point with keeping out all intruding thoughts and I was initially just struck by like, oh, that sounds like me in the dreams. And I just offhand sort of associated my thoughts with the students, that the students in the dreams were representing my thoughts and me trying to sort of corral them in what was becoming a really intense uh, meditation practice, um, uh, generating a, you know, I was putting a lot of effort to, into it. It was a big part of my life at the time. And then because I had the journal, I could see the two things side by side and it clicked. And it's like, oh, well, yeah, they're, 
the one is the one is causing the other. And so in that case, it was a dream pattern that wasn't something that I had to solve. It wasn't a problem. It wasn't pointing to some anxiety in my life or a problem in my life that I needed to address. It was, you know, just sort of coincidence. I mean, it was perfectly fine. So I, I didn't have to worry about those dreams anymore. Do you find it helpful? One of the reasons that you found this pattern is because you incorporated everything into one journal. Yes. So you, so you can identify the patterns like your wake journal and your dream journal together. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, there's lots of different ways to do journaling and it's so idiosyncratic and people got to figure out what, what works for them in their daily life. Um, you know, for something like a disciplined meditation practice, it's really easy to keep that in a, um, in a journal. Um, you know, and you, you just, you're gonna have to figure out for yourself what sort of things you're doing in your life what's important to you to figure out what you're going to keep in there. I don't do much sort of diary sort of journaling, you know, Oh, here's the things I did today or, or processing thoughts, but that might be really important for some people. Actually, there are times when I have done it in my life because I, it was useful for something at the time. And so my journaling practice changes over time in accordance with what I, what I need, but I like having them all having it all in one place where I can just see right next to each other. Um, more clearly, but then you can do the biweekly dream reports where you're making lists of the different types of things that appear. And so those you can keep out separately and you can look at the dates on those and then go back to your journals to see what the dreams are like, what else is going on in your life, your waking life at the time uh, to compare it. Fascinating. Um, so in my, uh, one of my questions, I was going to actually, I prepared these questions like two weeks ago. One of the things I had in here is I was going to share you know, some of my dreams with you. Yeah, great. Uh, but as, as ironic as that is, last night, I had a dream where I woke up screaming. You know, <laughs> I don't know if it was yeah. me preparing for this interview, but I don't know what happened. But I had this dream that um, my, uh, I don't know what it was. Like, my dad was me, my mom, and my dad. And my dad wanted my mom to sit in the car and just the rear view mirrors so she could see him standing behind the car. And then he had asked her to pull the car forward, but instead she just hit the gas and started driving through the backyard towards the trees. And as she was heading towards the street, the, the, the trees, I screamed, no, stop. And I woke myself up till I was actually screaming. Yes. Um, Right. So, of course, since I emphasize patterns, you know, there's not necessarily a whole lot of see an individual dream. But what you're showing there is a fascinating phenomenon with our dreams. So this goes back to sleep paralysis. And so it's some people talk more in their sleep than others. Um, but I find me or most people, if any sound comes out, it's very mumble, mumbly. You can't really make it out. And I've had this experience of screaming and waking myself up when you have a frightening dream. You're putting a lot of energy into trying to get that scream out. And I don't know if this happened in your dream last night, but it's happened to me many times where I can't get the scream out and I keep trying. And eventually the strain of doing it wakes me up and then the scream comes out. Um, right. And that again, shows the way that our, so the basic physiology of sleeping, which has such a big impact on our dreams. And so if you find yourself dreaming and not being able to get a scream out, not being able to get the scream out is probably not the thing to interpret because that's probably simply you're trying and then your body is responding with suppressing the scream because of sleep paralysis. And that's feeding back into your dream. 
And so that's not something you interpret about what's going on in your life that reflects physiology. So it's important to understand what goes into making up your dreams, including the physiology. So you don't end up trying to make a whole bunch of meaning out of something, uh, something like that. But in this case, um, so what I would do with your dream rather than interpreting it individually is I would, I would wonder, you know, how, how frequently are your parents appearing in your dreams? And when oh, did that start? Oh, okay. And, um, and you could, so there you've noticed a pattern. If they're one of the more common characters, and of course, I mean, that's kind of natural as well. You spend a lifetime with them, um, you know, and so they're a big part of, of your life. Um, and then there's notice, what are your interactions like with them? Uh, is that changing over time with the dreams? Is it always a particularly anxious thing, you know, which might just simply reflect a, either a recognized or an unrecognized conflict that you have uh, with them or something unresolved um, when you know, from before they died or, or whatever the case may be. And so that's why you need the journal. Go back, look at the feelings associated with it, the settings in which you find them, your, what your interactions with them are like. And then you might get a sense of what is their continual presence in the dream pointing to. And sometimes it can, it's not like some psychological thing to figure out, you know, some, you know, complex or anxiety. Sometimes it's just, there's somebody we miss. Yeah, I think that's what it is. I think it's that or some kind of fear. Um, so here's a good question. I didn't have this one on the list when I sent it to you, but I thought about it later. I had this girlfriend long, quite a while ago, and she swore. I hope it was quite a while ago. Yeah, and <laughs> uh, and she swore that um, if I ever had a dream about having sex with another woman. <laughs> it was considered cheating. Oh, that's a great question there. <laughs> no, it's not. I would say no, because here's, see, and this, again, this, this is such a great question because of what it points to about the nature of dreaming itself. We have this idea that I am a character in the dream. No, I'm not. All of the dream is me. There's nobody else there. Who else? There, there aren't other people in your dreams. There are these images in your in your body they're all you you're not i have had dreams in which supposedly i do not appear there's no character that looks like me but i'm conscious and aware of what's going on or sometimes there's this dream playing out where i'm sort of aware of it but there's no like ego i present or there's a character that looks like me that i identify with in the dream or even see the dream from their perspective but everything in that dream is me there is nobody else there. And so in those dreams that you're having, there was no other woman there. It was all you. So I was safe then. You're safe. <laughs> but, but here's the thing. You can think about, again, you can look for the patterns. How often do such dreams come up? What is the context uh, for them? Who, who is the other woman? These might be pointing to, um, to desires or anxieties or, or whatever that might be you know, real things to deal with or simply to enjoy, whichever. Indeed. So it's not that, the, so the, the streams aren't meaningless, but no, you're not cheating on anybody. Nobody else is there. I, I think you just relieved the consciousness, conscience, the, the consciousness of, of a lot of men. Like you just saved a lot of guilt. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so once the, uh, once you're keeping your dream journal and you're tracking it and you've identified um, you know, some of the patterns in your dreams 
and you connect them to a particular issue, where should a person go from there? I mean, do you recommend like a cognitive therapy or do you think just by simply identifying the problem helps fix it? Yeah, it depends. I mean, first thing is, is um, when you identify a pattern in the dreams and then you figure out what pattern your waking life it deals with, first thing is figure out if it's a problem or not. Right? Not all our patterns reflect anxieties or, or problems or fears in our lives. But let me give you, for the listeners, an example um, that's in the book as well. Uh, this is from when I was young. I kept having these dreams of um, uh, these frightening animals, often with exaggerated teeth or claws, who were menacing me in some way. And I was someone I was totally comfortable with animals, loved animals and you know, dogs. And I you know, spent all my time in the woods. I was totally comfortable with uh, animals and so on the face of it the dream didn't make much sense and here's when i realized like oh here's a pattern to these what's going on here and it directed me to pay attention to my daily life and i realized you know what i'm a lot more anxious person than i thought i had no idea just how much anxiety i was living with i was totally unaware of it um and so i was able to basically i just worked on it myself where i would throughout the day i started training myself to pay attention and when i would feel that anxiousness or muscle tightness or whatever emerge I would just acknowledge it and let it go. And over time, it became a habit. The, 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 the anxiety was a habit. And so I was unlearning that and relearning the new habit of, of being at ease and, and relaxed. And so I was able to work on it uh, that way. A, a pattern might point you to a conflict in a relationship that you can then resolve with that person um, and just have the cause of those dreams just disappear then because you've dealt with it in waking life. Or maybe you would need counseling uh, for it. Maybe it's uh, the dreams are pointing to ongoing effects from, uh, from a trauma from many years ago and that you realize, you know, I've never really resolved this. It's continuing to affect my life. And maybe you need uh, somebody to help you out with dealing with that, or, you know, going to a counselor. Um, and so, and sometimes just becoming aware of what that pattern represents is enough to just, um, um, to, to, to just make the, the, um, uh, the problem go away. Yeah, you know, that's actually something I for, didn't even think about or forgot to mention, you know, it was like this idea, like I know like people who suffer like traumatic child abuse and stuff like that. Well, a lot of times have reoccurring issues in their dreams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, cause think about what, what's going to cause a, pro- a pattern in your dreams. It's going to be something that you are, uh, emotionally committing a lot of energy to, or that is something that is simply persistent in your, in your life. And so maybe you dream about coworkers a lot simply because you're around them a lot and it doesn't really mean anything or unconsciously, even you're putting a lot of ener- emotional energy into dealing with uh, you know, a childhood abuse or whatever. So all of those sorts of any of that sort of repetition in your life, that sort of intense energy, those are the things that are going to force them their way out uh, into your dreams Interesting. Um, so this is a question that I had um, came up with, and um, and actually we were talking. You mentioned taking it out, but I actually really liked your answer to it. And I had asked you like, "What was the future of dream analysis?" And you said that it's probably going to be, you know, in the hands of amateur dream people like you. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I'm thinking like, that's kind of actually cool. Cause like, 
you know, like say like, like um astronomy, for example, you know, like all these amateur astrologers are like finding comets and planets and stuff like that, and making discoveries. Astronomers, I mean. Yeah, astronomers. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that is one of the science few sciences where yeah, you really do have amateurs still making cool contributions. Yeah, well, so I assume that there are psychotherapists who are still working uh, with their um, patients' dreams. And I imagine they're going to still continue to do that. But my impression is as a, most of the field of psychology they sort of tended towards dreams are just random and, and meaningless. Um, and so therefore not of much value. So they're just kind of seeding the, the ground to, to the rest of us. Because of course, because dreams are bizarre, we can't help but be fascinated by them. And if you know, the scientists aren't going to be the ones leading us in how to, to think about this. We'll, we're going to figure it out for ourselves because we just can't ignore these things. Um, and, uh, but I think but for years, for decades, I mean, I, I actually, I've seen those dream dictionaries. I've seen in the, um, one of the archives in Philadelphia, an eight, late 18th century book, a collection of, uh, of, it's a dream dictionary. So these things have been around for a long time. And I think that's one thing we just really got to get past. But dream dictionaries are easy. Anybody can pull it off the shelf, look at it. But, it. but you get out of it what you put into it. If all you do is look up something like, oh, banana, okay, that's what it means. Well, you know, that was easy and, and you're not getting much, uh, much out of it. Uh, but an approach like, like mine or used mm -hmm. journaling, unfortunately, it's a little bit of work. But there's the payoff. I mean, I can tell you straight up, there is the, uh, the payoff there. You get real... Um, real changes in your life out of it as opposed to just, you know, looking up some, you know, a bunch of individual symbols from a dream, which will just give you nonsense. Maybe if you squint, you start to see something mm -hmm. at it, but you need to take a step back from the dreams, look at the pattern, except for the big dreams. And you'll know it when you get one of those. By all what means, kind of um, changes have you experienced from looking at your dreams? Um, so like the example of uh, relieving myself of a lot of anxiety that I didn't even know was, was there. Um, I've also had a case of um, where, because of like childhood trauma thing, I, there was other things going on in my life in the present then, even as an adult, that I didn't realize were triggering uh, certain reactions from the childhood trauma. Uh, trauma. And, and my, uh, my dreams alerted me to the fact that I was experiencing this heightened, um, heightened anxiety and the images in the dream were able to allow me to relate like, oh, okay, this isn't really in response to what's going on in the present. The present is simply triggering these um, reactions from when I was a kid. I'm an adult now. My situation is totally different. I can just let that go. And, and, it, and the, the anxiety disappeared and I was able to respond to the events in the present for what they really were rather than for the phantoms that I was conjuring up based on my, my childhood experiences. And so I think that's a, that's a real benefit that helps us to live our lives more skillfully um, uh, it'd be, you know, be happier and be able to help other people uh, more readily. Do you think it's also possible, like in the reverse, that maybe dreams trigger people to have recurring trauma throughout their lives by not looking at them? Hmm. Um, yeah, I suppose. I mean, I guess, well, I'm sure we've all experienced that. I mean, we all know what a frightening dream is like, and they are for, they are for real, for real frightening. You know, you can, you can wake up, think about how, some nightmares that you've had where you've woken up and I mean, you are just shattered or really rattled by it for maybe even hours afterwards. And every time, you know, our brains don't pay much attention to the difference between actually seeing something happening and imagining it or dreaming it. 
And so if you keep replaying that thing over and over in your head, you are in a sense reinforcing it. You know, it's like taking a, a, um, a nail and rubbing it into a piece of wood. You keep doing that over and over again. You start creating this um, the little rut and the, that the nail can get stuck in. You can keep deepening and deepening it. That's what we do every time you replay something in, in our head. Uh, and we can do that for good habits or for bad ones. And uh, so without dealing with things, yes, we can be uh, simply reinforcing them every time we either imagine it or, or dreaming of it because the experience of the dream as far as our body's concerned, it's not much different than experiencing it in real life. The same. Yeah, so it's still trauma, and you just keep yeah. creating more and more damage by unconsciously reliving that trauma. Mm-hmm. Pretty deep, actually. Um, yeah, right. So dreams are worth paying attention to. They are, you said you use the word deep. Right? Yeah. Dreams are like the same way that myths are deep, they're boundless. You know, they, you just, you go. You get, you never get into the bottom of that well. Absolutely. Um, do you have any um, other other than your own book? Of course. Do you have any other resources that you would suggest for some of my listeners to help them look into their dreams? Um, yeah, I. It certainly um, reading more is the um, is the the main thing. That um, I and besides reading. Um, books on, on dreaming, I'd recommend reading about the, the basic physiology of, of sleeping and dreaming. You know, and there's tons of books out there. I need to recommend anything in, in particular. Um, and reading stuff by psychoanalysts like Freud and, and Jung is helpful. It's, a, it's dealing with the different subset of dreams than, uh, than what I'm talking about. Um, and also, I think for being able to recognize big dreams, reading deeply in, and broadly in mythology is also helpful to get a sense of the, the sorts of symbolism imagery that we've, you know, collectively humans have been cultivating and, and dealing with for, um, for, well, millennia. I was like really getting like to the heart of like who we are, you know, yeah. individuals as a civilization, as spiritual beings. I think symbol and ritual are maybe the most fundamental language that we have beyond verbal language. And the dreams are, of course, part of that fundamental language that all humans share. They're definitely, they're, they're a huge part of us. Yeah, I think you got that exactly right. This is a big part. It just simply tells us a lot about who we are collectively. Um, so where can our, my listeners purchase your book? Yeah, well, they can, of course, uh, get it directly from Inner Traditions. Um, look that up, or it's, you know, it, you might find it on uh, bookshelves in stores, um, and certainly the, you know, the big booksellers like Barnes Noble and Amazon um, all carry it as well. All right, and the name of the book is Dream Patterns, Revealing the Hidden Patterns of Our Waking Lives by Johnson Miller. And um, thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much. I'm super excited to be your first guest. <laughs> That's great. Um, so have you um, listened to any good music, any movies, books that you've been reading lately? Let's see. Good music lately. Um, I like to listen to a lot of music from uh, Constellation Records in uh, Montreal, where it's a lot of like far out experimental improvisational uh, sorts of music with um, you know bizarre textures. And you know, Godspeed You Black Emperor is probably the uh, the, the best of, of the bands on Constellation Records. I don't have to check that out. I need some yes. good music to listen to. 
you'll like them. Absolutely. All right. So uh, that concludes our interview. Next week, I have Karen Timper from New Jersey Ghost Organization. She's written three books on the paranormal, and she's working on a fourth on Ghosts of the Hindenburg. I think that's going to be a very interesting interview with her. And I also have coming up Andrew Condoris, author, filmmaker, and blogger. Andre Doshim Hala, author of five books on Zen and teaching Zen master. And Rachel Celeste, astrologer. Um, if anybody wants to be a guest on this show, you can email me at everything imagine, everything imaginable 2020 at gmail.com. And remember, everything that is was first imagined. See you next week, and thank you for listening. Thank you.